For the past month or so, we've been in chapter 8 and 9 and 10, and it's been really addressing one of the big questions that the Corinthians were dealing with at this time. It was this question, should we eat food that was sacrificed in pagan temples or not? And Paul is clear, as we went through in chapter 8 and 9, um, well, basically in 8, is that, that this food has no significance to your faith. So whether you eat it or don't eat it, the most important thing is that you consider your weaker or brother or sister, a brother or sister, because if you eat it and they stumble, then just don't bother eating it. We want to be cautious of what we're doing. In other words, to give up your rights or freedom for others so that they do not struggle in their faith and so that you don't put an obstacle in front of them to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 9, Paul gives this long personal example of how he gave up his rights as an apostle, as an apostle for all the Corinthians and the church. And then in chapter 10, last week, I shared how then Paul gives a warning that don't take your freedom also too far. Don't take it so far where you actually indulge in sin like the Israelites did back in um, the time of the Old Testament. And then today, we're going to kind of make a circle back where he answers a question of should we eat this food or not. And though Paul says it doesn't matter in chapter 8, in, in chapter 10, he, he begins to give some warnings and he gives even a starker warning in the text that we're going to be reading today. So chapter 10, verses 14 to 12, and we're going to be talking a lot about idolatry. I know, super exciting stuff, all right? Idolatry, okay? So verse 14 through 22, let me read and then I'll jump right in, okay? Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we, are, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, this past fall, this past fall, uh, when it was warmer outside, I had the privilege of going to Brookfield Zoo with my kids. And it's an exciting time, um, exciting moment that we got. We got to see the lions, the dolphins, all the things that we get to see, right? Kids love zoos. Uh, I mean, I, I kind of like zoos. It's kind of fun going to a zoo. Uh, and then after a while, though, with kids who don't are not on, like, you know, wagons or strollers yet, they get tired and they get hungry. And so after a little while, we go into one of their little, like, food court areas, get some food. Um, and after they're done eating, my Sophia, my wife, had to feed our youngest. And so I took them out. And I took them out because I wanted one thing. Uh, I wanted this stand that said Dippin' Dots, okay? I don't know if you guys know what Dippin' Dot ice creams are, but for me growing up, it was an, ex an amazing treat to have where you would get tiny ice cream balls of artificial flavored explosions in your mouth, okay? And so I was excited. My kids were kind of excited, but I was really excited. And so I got one to share. And as you can see a picture behind me, we sat down and we started enjoying it. 
All right, I, I, I don't know if actually they really liked it, to be honest, but I enjoyed it. And so we ate, and then after a few moments, though, I realized this was a bad idea. This was a really bad idea. Why? Not because of the Dippin' Dots, but because it was kind of warm. And in about a few minutes, there were about five bees that surrounded us because of those Dippin' Dots. And no matter how much I tried to like sway and like move the dip and dot, try to figure out how to, how to eat this without them like possibly stinging us, they were just constantly bombarding us. And my kids were like swatting them away, which is not the best thing because, you know, they might sting them. And so I was, you know, I was kind of in a frantic mode and I was like, as much as I love these dip and dots and being outside and eating it, we had to get away from these bees. You know, I didn't want them to sting them because that would just ruin our whole entire trip to the zoo. And so I grabbed the kids and I'm saying, okay, kids, we got to go inside. And I grabbed the Dippin' Dots in one hand and I grabbed one of the kids and told the other kid to grab his hand. And then we're going to make a beeline indoors. Okay, we're going to get safely away from the bees. And in our haste and in the franticness of that moment, I got my kids, but I dropped the Dippin' Dots along the way. And it was pretty heartbreaking for me, but I had to, I had to get inside because I knew that our kids, my kids were not going to like the bees around them. And in the end, I knew that fleeing from the bees was more important than saving that ice cream. We fled because it was a dangerous situation for us. Now, perhaps you don't love Dippin' Dots as much as I do, or you're not afraid of bees like you know, our kids are. But the principle is true. You flee something because that something or even someone is dangerous. Perhaps it's fleeing from a bear in the woods or a shark in the ocean. Maybe it's fleeing a fire in a building. Perhaps it's even fleeing a terrible working environment or, in the worst cases, an abusive relationship. Or like many of our migrant brothers and sisters and refugees throughout the world, perhaps it's fleeing because of famine, our natural disaster, our war, our other dangerous situations. You flee when whatever is before you is too dangerous to endure, even if it means leaving your ice cream behind or more costly things like even family or jobs and homes. And in our text, Paul's foundational command to the Corinthians, which is in verse 14, is to flee from idolatry. Notice it's not just don't commit idolatry or just avoid idolatry, but it's to flee from idolatry. Run away with all your might because idols are that dangerous. And if you think Paul is just being blunt or being like, you know, not sensitive here, notice in verse 14 how he says this. He says, therefore, my beloved. Paul gives this stark warning like a parent tells a wayward child, my beloved child, hear me because I love you so much. Flee from idolatry. And it shouldn't surprise us that even the Apostle John in 1 John 5-21 to also says this. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And it's interesting that the only time Paul uses that word flee is in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, where he says to flee sexual immorality. Two sins which Paul tells us is very, very dangerous to our faith. 
Now, before I go to the rest of the text here, let me explain what an idol is, just, just kind of quickly here. And some of you may know, but what is idolatry? I went over this last week a little bit, but I believe the best definition comes from Tim, Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. And I'm going to read kind of a larger section here, but he says this, What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And he continues, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I'll have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something. But perhaps the best one is worship. In short, idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and our happiness, our significance, our security. And like I said last week, our idols today are, are not statues, our food sacrifices, but our idols are often when good things become ultimate things. It can be our resources, our wealth, our security, our comfort, our relationships, like our friends, our romantic ones, or even our families. It can be success, our achievement, like the letters behind your name or your job title. Everything, um, which I honestly think that one of the, the, I can't speak too long about this, but one of the biggest ones today, I think, that many of us struggle with, even myself, is the idol of self where everything is revolved around me, myself, and I. So if those are our present-day idols, the immediate question then is, 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 is how or why? Why should we flee from these idols? Why are idols dangerous, and what's so dangerous about them? And so I want to answer that question today. Why are they idols dangerous? And I want to give three reasons why we are to flee from idols. And I'm going to go through them one by one, and this will kind of help us go through our text here. Uh, the first one, the first reason we are to flee from idols is because we are united with Christ and to his church and his church. In verse 16 and 17, Paul writes this. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. You know, it's no secret here that Paul is talking about communion here, the Lord's Supper. A communion, as we do uh, like once every two or three weeks as a church, is the, one of the two ordinances that Jesus commands the disciples, and accordingly to us, the church, to practice together. The other one is baptism. But unlike baptism, which happens once when you publicly give witness to the transformation of your life and uh, faith in Christ, communion happens regularly. We do it you know, regularly as the body of Christ when the local church gathers together. And if you just look at this, first the taking of the cup, which represents the blood of Christ, and then the, blood, the bread, which represents the body of Christ. And then when we take of these elements, Paul says that we join in a participation in Christ. And that's kind of a weak word to use, or weak translation. The better word, uh, it's this Greek word, kononia. And I mentioned it a lot throughout my sermons, but it's one of Paul's favorite words, which means to share or to have fellowship. It's literally being joined together for one unified effort. So in communion, we don't just eat bread and drink juice, but in that practice, and we are a koinonia community, and we're ourselves, we're focusing on 
God, on Christ's work, his death, his resurrection, and on the cross, how it cleanses all of our sins and welcomes us into the family of God. And another way to say it is that communion, we are fully and wholly devoting ourselves to Christ. So in communion, we're showing that our allegiance, our number one allegiance is to Christ alone. That's why during the communion time, it's not actually a practice meant for those who are not Christ followers, because it wouldn't really make sense because they're not, their allegiance is not to Christ first. But second, as we devote ourselves to Christ, the taking of communion also happens in the context of a local church. You never take communion or you're never not supposed to take it on your own. It's always meant to be done in community. And in verse 17, it says, we who are many. So it's simply Paul is saying that we who are many with different backgrounds and ages and giftings and, and brokenness as one body take one bread together. So just as much as communion unites us to Christ, it also unites us to one another. It's this koinonia idea again, that when we take communion together, we are saying to one another, I am with you till the end. I am here to love you. I am here to care for you, to support you, to encourage you, to also keep you accountable. My allegiance is to God, but also in communion, my allegiance is to you as my brother and sister as well. This is one of the most beautiful pictures uh, of our faith, that even for like a smaller church like ours, and I imagine many of us, we come from different cities, we come from different families, different jobs, different backgrounds, experiences, ages, we're all gathered here as one family. Even for a small church like ours, that is a beautiful picture of what the church should be. Now, I'll get kind of more into communion and the theology and all that stuff in communion later on in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. But what Paul wants us to see is that if our undivided allegiance is to God and to one another, why would we want to contaminate it with idols and destroy our corrupt, the beautiful unity within the church? You know, it's kind of like concrete. I don't know if you guys know concrete too well, but um, I don't, so I'm kind of like this, look this up. But concrete is kind of a unique mixture of chemicals that can create, you know, like a, a really strong force to build many different things. Uh, it's molded together. And I think our unity with Christ and to one another is like we should be like concrete. We should be joined together and it's not meant to be broken. But what happens then when you put idols into our community? It's very much like when you introduce water to concrete. Over time, water is one of the elements that can slowly break apart concrete, or if the water and the force is strong enough, it can break concrete all at once. It can create also bacteria inside the concrete and mold to then grow and expand and slowly separate the concrete, where you see in the picture behind me all these different cracks and ways where concrete pretty much is then deemed useless. It's probably why we have so many potholes in Chicago and they're still not filled, but it's, it's okay. It's kind of the reason why that, that, that happens. But uh, for us, I think that picture should help us see that when we put bring idols into the mix of our community and of our church and in our relationship with God, it can create cracks and then eventually divide us from the very thing that Christ has united for our sake. So Paul is saying, do you know how dangerous idols can be to your faith in Christ and also to the church? Do you want idols like wealth or success or, you know, comfort or selfishness to break apart the church that you are part of? Or worse, break your communion apart from God. So he says, flee from idols. 
The second reason Paul gives that we are to flee from idols is because we are potentially allowing demons into our lives. Did Noah just say demons into our lives? Yes, I did. I just said demons. Now look verse 18 and through verse 22. I'm just going to break this down a little bit. It's, it's kind of deep here, but just follow me here. Verse 18, it says, Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. In this verse alone, Paul is going back to the Israelites again. He did this last, a uh, little before in chapter 10. But he goes back to when the people of Israel are offering sacrifices in worship to God. And in that day, they didn't have communion like we do or our worship services. But what they would do is bring animal or produce or drink as an offering, and they would offer it on the altar, and it would be burnt up or used. And then in the celebration of that worship, they would then eat or drink of those uh, offerings that are given and a way to um, worship God in fellowship and over a meal. The clearest example is in Exodus 24. And let me just read a portion of this, just to kind of show you that this is very much true of the Israelites back then. Verse 5, he says, And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in a basin, and half of the blood he threw it against the altar. Then he took the, blood, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Verse 11, they beheld God and ate and ate and drank. In this worship service, they believed that God was present at that meal as they ate and drank. In a similar way, when we practice communion, now we believe that God is also present with us as well through the presence of the Holy Spirit, that he is with us, that the, the bread that we take and the juice that we take together, that we are fellowshipping with God together. So then Paul is saying, so then what about these sacrifices that are happening in idols, uh, for idols in pagan temples? What, what's happening there? And so in verse 19 of our text, Paul says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? And if we go back to chapter 8, Paul says idols and these food sacrifices, they don't they don't have much significance. The idols, they don't mean anything. There aren't These gods aren't real. So they're just wooden or golden statues that they are worshiping. They have no meaning or no power. So then what's the big deal? Idols don't exist, but demons do. Demons do. And in verse 20 to 21, let me just read this to you again. Um, I don't know if you caught it, but it says, Now I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So what's happening here, and this is some context here, is that in these pagan worship services, what's happening is that when the Corinthians were going and eating these food sacrificed to Greek and Roman gods, thinking that there was no harm happening to their line, Paul is drawing a clear line and saying, this is not the same when you take that meat and you take it to your house and you eat it in private. But when you join them in their worship services, they are intentionally or unintentionally inviting demonic influences or forces, just like how the Israelites invited God when they ate and drank with God into their presence. And in verse 21, that word partake, it's that same word, koinonia, that in these services, they are literally fellowshipping or joining themselves to demons. And if you look at actually at historical records and context and even the murals on some of the Roman temples, 
you'll see that the picture of them is when they're having these feasts of worship and sacrifice, that they also draw or they write out that the gods were present with them, that their different gods are like fellowshipping with them. And then when they make these various vows or have these, um, these meals together, that there's records of showing that people felt the presence of these gods. And so most likely, if idols are not real or these gods aren't real, what kind of presence are they feeling? Paul is saying that they are feeling actually demonic presences in those worship services. And this is maybe kind of weird for us to hear, but in that time and day, this was common knowledge. They all saw this and they believed this. And for Paul, this was a no-win situation. You, as a Christ follower, are entering into a dangerous and potentially spiritually oppressive presence. And so for Paul, he says, get out of there. There's no point of being in there. Now for us, um, we don't have Greek or Roman you know, God temples, and we don't have sacrifices to like the God of Zeus and have a worship service or cults like that, um, or, or do we? Um, in an article, in a 2014 New Yorker article titled Poisoned Ivy, um, Are Elite Colleges Bad for the Soul?, the writer mentions that uh, for many elite universities, the most prestigious of them, that these were meant to be places to train adults as whole persons, right? Um, they, they called this a liberal arts education, where they would be able to learn who they are and what the world is like, understand a variety of subjects, interact with others and other students, and be a well-rounded citizen in society. And it's produced some of the greatest minds and humans and missions this world has ever seen. And a lot of those Ivy League schools actually had Christian origins as well. But the article, as you can tell by Poisoned Ivy, uh, points out that that's not actually what colleges are for anymore. Perhaps you felt this going through college or university, but if when you go through the university now, it's a place where it really it's just a place of competition. It's a place where you can outshine your classmates, not to learn, but to gain the next ladder into where you feel like is success uh, meant to be, whether it's to get that next best entrance into the medical school or residency program you were looking for, or that consultant job, or that grad program, or that connection to that particular company, or that leader, or that internship with that tech firm or financial firm, or that resume experience, and on and on it goes. It's a place to build up your resume so you can get that next best thing you're meant to be looking for. Today, colleges and universities, they actually don't, they, they don't promote that this is a great learning environment. They don't promote themselves as an ecosystem where individuals can grow and learn. But the ultimate way they promote themselves is that it's the launching pad to the best position that you can get yourself, that best job or that best salary or that best title. Not all colleges, but a lot of them are like that. And as a result, college and even the working environment has been very brutal for many of us. Long gone are places where you can just work 40 hours a week. It's 60 hours a week. Or even for some junior employees at Golden Sackman, they, they record that it's over 100 hours a week that they are working. There are idols that are being worshipped and demons that I believe are present in these idols of money, 
of power, of status, of security, of fame, of success, and the list goes on. And I'm not saying that colleges and universities are places that we should like not go into. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that there are real demonic forces that are weaving false narratives into our society and our lives that makes us more enslaved to idols than we would like to believe. We, we do not live in a merely a f- physical world. We don't live in a world where there is just, you know, what we can see in front of us. But there is a clear, you know, it, it's, it's not popular to talk about in Western society. But in scripture, the presence of angels and demons are real. Like it's not something that scripture hides from. And as the verse that many of us maybe know in Ephesians 6, Paul writes this. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And there are spiritual forces, or demons, there I say, that have dominion over the most powerful institutions of our world. Governments, um, things that are just evil and detestable like slavery or sex trafficking or even just the presence of like different things in social media they're they're in power in boardrooms and media outlets and they are, i also believe they have power over certain addictions and depressions or physical illnesses as well not every single thing is influenced by demonic i'm not saying that but what i'm saying is that we cannot take it out of the equation in our lives and let me just share one personal story i've had um you know in my life, uh, I, I grew up very much kind of in the Pentecostal like church world. If you know what that means, it's like a lot more Holy Spirit kind of movement inspired. And um, yeah, in my life, I, I've definitely felt and experienced some demonic presences in my life. Um, not because of my own like awareness, but I believe the Holy Spirit helping identify that. And one time, this is not like a really crazy story, but this is a significant one. One time, um, this is actually before we planted Hyde Park where we had prayer walks throughout the, the neighborhood and community. And one of the times we prayed around the University of Chicago. So we had a group of people praying around the Chicago uh, University with the students, the ministries, everything all going on on campus. And during that prayer walk, you know, uh, I, I, I felt something really odd. And then as we got closer to some of the, the oldest buildings on campus, I just felt this deep, like, heaviness and weight on my shoulders i got like kind of goosebumps that i just can't really explain what i felt but as i went through and i prayed i realized that there there is a spiritual demonic force even over the university that they have strongholds over different things and it affects the students the faculty employees even if they don't realize it that when the university is operating there are real idols that are being worshipped in that university in the halls in the rooms uh, and the decisions that are being made and i can tell you other stories of feeling that kind of dark oppressive force whether it was you know after watching a certain movie uh, you know even a horror movie that i probably shouldn't have watched whether it's um, walking into a particular area of uh, the city where there are like church buildings that are now being like converted into different like you know it's kind of weird but you know converted into like bars or clubs and they're not like I don't, i'm not saying it's like wrong all entirely but it's just a, an eerie feeling and even um probably the other experiences too have been when i went to like prayer vigils on streets of chicago that are the most violent and gun violence areas uh it, it yeah it's it's a feeling that you just can't shake and so what i'm trying to say is that we are not bulletproof to these demonic Forces. We are not. And Paul is very clear here. 
So the question for us, and uh, this might apply to you, it might not, but I think for all of us, we can ask the question, what places or activities or things you are consuming could be welcoming demonic forces into your own lives? Could it be certain work environments? Could it be certain activities or venues you visit? Could it be certain media you're consuming or social media accounts you are following? Could it be even certain ideologies that you are believing and attaching yourself to? For me, there are certain things and contents and contexts that I don't even touch. Uh, it's not even worth it for me to touch. Uh, I don't want to mention them because I think it's unique to every person. Uh, and again, hear me. I'm not saying that we are to be like Amish and just like live apart from everything. But what I'm saying is that we, we can't neglect that spiritual warfare and attacks of demons is not going to happen in our lives. It, it, it will. It might not look the way that you think it is. It is much more common than you would like to believe. And so Paul says, do not even flirt with this. Flee from idols. It's not worth it. So I, it's a touch sensitive, maybe sensitive topic or a kind of weird topic. And if you want to talk more about it, let me know. I would love to talk more about it as well. Uh, let me just conclude with the last reason, the third reason why we should flee idols. It's because we are not as strong as we think. We are not as strong as we think. Look at verse 22 with me. Paul says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You know, Paul concludes this section with a reminder that when we worship or draw near to the presence of idols, it's not just that the idols are dangerous or that we're inviting demonic presence, but we are also taking the glory that is rightfully God's and giving it to something else. To provoke the Lord to jealousy, it's this word that comes from zeal. So it's not like when you are jealous about someone else's car or body or job. It's this word where you are passionately and rightfully angry or you know jealous because you are stealing what was rightfully someone, so glory of God, and giving it to something lesser. It's like if I had a piece of bread and there was a hungry child right here and there's an alley cat on, the, on my other side and I chose to give that piece of bread and give it to that alley rat. That's, you would be outraged. That, is, that doesn't deserve to be to a rat. It should be given to a hungry child. And so in that same way, the church or God, whoever, is rightfully jealous of, the, of what should be belong to the Lord. That when we are worshiping idols, we are stealing God's glory. And then he ends that verse and says, Are we stronger than he? Are we stronger than our rightfully jealous God who can destroy us just like he did the Israelites for our idolatry? Every time the Israelites thought that they were strong enough to do whatever they wanted to and worship idols and steal God's glory away, the entire story of Israel is when God demonstrates his glory and his judgment on them when they did that. And not even just Israel, but nations like Babylon and Persia and later on like Rome or even if you look in our context, the Soviet Union or any nation, if, you, if they are a nation committed to idolatry, eventually God's judgment will judge them. Do we think we can stand against God's judgment? Are we even strong enough to resist the demonic forces that are in our lives or that are around us in idols? And if you remember the stories of scripture when um, people were possessed by demons, that not even chains or many men could withhold this man who was possessed by demons. And these are stories that are not uncommon to our brothers and sisters who are in Africa or who are in Asia or who are in South America. 
And do, or do you even know the stories of those who are addicts, are those who might be so fixated on an idol, like success, or wealth, or power, or different substances, that they get so entrapped by them that they sacrifice even their families, or their health, or their friends, or even their faith, just to get what they want? Do you think you can withstand these demonic influences or idols on your own? You can't. None of us can. You know, it's amazing to even think about this a few years ago when how one virus just shipwrecked and altered the course of our world. You know, we know the story because we all lived through it. The COVID was, you know, hopefully it's, it's kind of done by now, but you, know, you never know. Uh, but it's amazing how just one virus, how it was, th- this one thing just reminded us how weak our physical bodies were, but also it reminded us when everything shut down how weak everything around us was, whether it's families, our marriages, whether it's communities, whether it's belief in institutions, or how fragile our entire infrastructure of economy, our health, and life was in this world. Just one virus helped us realize that we're not as strong as we like to believe. We are not strong enough to resist the idols in our lives. We are not strong enough to resist the consequences of our sin, the judgment of God on our own. We are not even strong enough to resist the demons on our own. But do you know who is? Do you know who was able to resist every single idol and danger on this earth? Jesus was. Jesus was the only one. And, you know, I read this in the beginning of our worship service in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, that as Jesus became fully God and fully man when he came on this earth as a physical person, one of the greatest tests that he would endure was in the wilderness. And this is intentional. This is not an accident that Jesus did this. In Matthew 4, 1 through 3, it says the spirit led him to the wilderness and he was tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, obviously, and the tempter came. In the 40 days here, this is actually where we get the, the length of our Lenten season. It also represents the 40 years of wilderness the Israelites dwelled in, in the wilderness. But as Israelites failed over and over again, and as we, trying to do this, will fail over and over again in sin and idolatry, this text is a proof that Jesus did not fail. It's proof that after 40 days in his greatest weakness and hunger, even though the devil tempted him, and I have kind of a chart, like an outline here, the devil tempted him in three ways that would, obviously, we would fail. But Jesus did not. First, he tempted him in the physical temptation or the lust of the flesh to just do what your body is craving and to make stones into bread. And Jesus says, no, I will not. And the second way is that the glory temptation, that the devil tempted Jesus to test God and jump down from the highest of heights and to bring glory upon himself by saving himself. And Jesus says, I do not test, we are not to test God and resist again. And the last temptation is the power temptation, where the devil says, bow down to me and I'll give you everything here on this earth. And Jesus would say no. He, he did not want to skip the cross and bow down to Satan, and he would resist and worship God the Father alone. And in every temptation thrown by the devil, Jesus would resist it. He would flee from the very idols that we failed in. He would flee self-glory, flee the flesh, flee power, and be strong enough to resist the devil in sin. So that in his sinlessness, unlike us, he would not deserve eternal death. But 
the good news, the good news of the gospel was that Jesus did not leave us in our weakness and sin, but that he would lay down his perfect life on the cross to die for every single imperfect person on this earth. That on the cross, Jesus would take upon the judgment that we deserve. That he would be punished by the evil of this world. But in three days, the good news is that Jesus would resurrect in full power and glory. And also destroy the strength of Satan. And then satisfy the wrath of God. So that if we believe in him and follow him, we who are weak can be made strong in him. Not by our might not by what we can do or accomplish, but by the might of Jesus Christ living in us and through us through the Spirit. We are not as strong as we think, but the good news is that Jesus is. In Jesus, we have the strength to endure every temptation. In Jesus, we have the strength to say no to every idol. In Jesus, we have the strength to fight off every demonic influence that will come us come at us in our world. And even if we fail, even if we mess up, even if we fall into the sin of idolatry, Jesus' blood is strong enough to forgive you of all your sins and to heal you from all your unrighteousness. Jesus is much stronger than we think. So we return to the first reason that we flee from idols. What's the application here? To flee from idols and to flee to where? is to flee towards, is to flee from idols, but it's to run towards Jesus. We return to the table that Jesus has set before us. We return to the gospel and what God has promised for us. We return to one another who can support and encourage us in every season. And we say to one another, Jesus is strong enough. He will always welcome you in his strong yet loving arms. So what I want to do today uh, to close is, um, you know, I wrestled if we should have communion again, because it kind of, you know, the text implies communion. But uh, what I want to do this morning, actually, is to have a time of self-reflection. And so I'll invite Kevin to kind of um, play some background music. But, you know, we're in the Lenten season here. And often in Lent, many people fast various things that uh, might be distracting or might be things that are just not helping us focus in our relationship with God. It could be even idols that we have in our lives. And so what I want us to do is um, there is going to be a list of questions, I believe the next slide or two slides, um, that are, um, James, you might the next slide for the sections of the questions there. And there's a bunch of questions that are in uh, a devotional I'm reading, uh, Journey to the Cross, and it has questions to ask, what, what are these things? What are the things that um, control our wishes? What are the things that can make or break our day or can produce almost instant happiness or things that cause us to envy? And I want you to just pray on your own for the next two to three minutes. Um, you know, maybe you need to listen to God. Maybe you need to just pray. Maybe you need to just work through these questions. And pray foremost that whatever idols you are tending to run to, that God would give you the strength to flee from them and to run towards Jesus. And so I'll give you two to three minutes on your own. Um, just pray in quietness or listen if you need to. And then after that moment, I'll pray and the band will play a few more songs to conclude our worship time. So pray on your own at this moment.
Let me pray. Father, we come before you. Um, Jesus, we come before you. And God, we are so, so weak. Um, And if we don't think that we're weak, God, uh, remind us just how weak we are. Uh, That we cannot run from idols, that we cannot um, save ourselves, that we cannot um, fight against the demonic influences of this world, God, but we are so, so weak and prone to wander, prone to leave you, prone to worship the things of this world. Um, And so, God, I just ask uh, in this Lenten season that as we prepare our hearts for Easter, that you would help us to flee, flee the things that are dangerous in our lives not in terms of just giving up everything, but in terms of recognizing that we need your strength, that we need your help, that we need Christ's blood to forgive us, to restore us, and we need your spirit to empower us, to lead us in all the places that we'll go. Because God, we will face hardship. We will face the difficulties of life. We will, we will face the demonic influences of this world that we are, not, we are not exempt from that, God. But I pray that you would please strengthen us for those, God, in this room that um, are confessing idols, for those that are um, not even sure what those idols are, God, I pray that in this Lenten season that you would do a transformative work in our hearts through your Spirit, that we would come to see how dangerous they are and how just futile these idols are and see how glorious and amazing and strong and kind and loving our God is. And so lead us, God. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' powerful name, we pray. Amen.